Audio Parfait. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we are all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. Go to their Instagram or Twitter, at the underscore gallery, to see just a few of the prints that they have available. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, The Gallery is offering our listeners 15% off of their purchase by using the code 15 off. Go to thegallery.com. That's the G A L R Y.com. So your wall will never be boring again. It's barely noon, and I need an alcoholic beverage. It's past noon. It's past one o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, I still need an alcoholic beverage. Oh, that's fine. I' a little upset I couldn't get the mixer to work. We got a brand new mixer, and I came out here all excited and giddy to plug it in. It was kind of a birthday present for myself, and it's <clears throat> putting out a lot of static. So I got to work on that. It sucks. It does. Yeah. Oh, well, hey, welcome to Open a Fucking Fuck and listening to my first world problems. Which is really what they are. Yes, yes, yes. Some some poor man somewhere can't feed his family. I'm sitting here complaining about not being able to get my brand new mixer to work for our fucking podcast. Yes. Shame like, on you. Yeah, I know. I should, I should feel bad about it. But you don't. A little. Maybe not as much as I should. Because the, the man not feeding his family is not standing here next to me. Then I would feel bad. But I'm, everybody's kind of inside their own little bubble. True. It's hard to feel bad about things outside that bubble unless it's right in front of you. Yes. Just the, the way it is. So I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. How's everybody doing today? Um, I find it kind of, is prophetic the word? Coincidental? Ironic? Maybe? That we're running so late on getting this recorded. Uh, usually we have these done a couple weeks in advance. And I mean... This comes out, we're recording it Friday afternoon. It comes out Saturday morning. We got to record it. I got to edit it. I got to do all the shit to it. So I, I think, I guess prophetic is, is the right word to use when we're talking about how we're running so late and we're about to cover a man who never once in his life was able to complete anything on time. Yeah. He, he was always behind on deadlines, including... The last book he was supposed to write, he was a, almost a decade past his deadline. And he's quoted famously, which I'll bring it up in uh, a later episode, this quote. But he's quoted famously at saying, I love deadlines. I love the sound they make when they whoosh by. <laughs> which is... I'm, I'm a stickler for being early yes. on everything. yes. Me too. I, I hate being late. I hate being on time. I love to be early because then nobody could say anything to you about not being there when you're supposed to be there. Well, no, sometimes you, you're you like your mom and you arrive right on time. To what? 
like when when there's a school function, you're like, oh, we've got plenty of time. We'll be there in plenty of time. And I'm like, no, I, I we want. we live two blocks away from the school. It only takes a minute to get there. Yeah, but then we have to park very far away. Well, and it depends on what it's for. I, I don't want to park very far away and fight for a seat when we get in somewhere for like a, a concert or something. I also don't want to have to sit on those hard old wooden seats or those those stupid benches that they have for an hour waiting. Yeah, but I like to get good spots so I can record or you can see take them and pictures. Record them fine. No, not it's when not they're a, far away. There's nowhere to be far away. Yeah, there's crappy a, seats because when they're in the semicircle singing and it's stuff. It's a basketball gym in a high school. They're, you're never that far away. No, but the angle in which they stand for their performances, band or singing or whatever, sometimes the seats suck. Sometimes you're sitting behind them and you can't see them. We've never sat behind them. Yes, we have. I do not remember ever sitting behind them. Or we're sitting beside them and they're facing forward and I'm getting a side shot of them instead of looking at them. dozens of people right now going, get on with it for fuck's sake. Yeah, I'm complaining. Go ahead. (laughs) That's part of the show as we complain. That's the other show that we complain the most of. All right, so back to the issue at hand, which is that this I'm... author's the, the 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 author of this series. I'm so excited. About I know, it. I know you are, and it was a fun one to do. All the other ones were kind. I mean, they were fun to do, but they were kind of uh, they got parts where they were they were a drag. William S. Burroughs was kind of rough to get through. And uh, Mary Wollstonecraft had her her moments. This one was fun. This one was a lot of fun. I laughed a lot with this one. So we're covering our first true science fiction slash comedy author. So we, we've covered a little bit of sci-fi and horror stuff with uh, Robert E. Howard. Some comedy with Mark Twain. We did some time travel stuff with um, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. But this is a true sci-fi comedy writer. A true geek. A true nerd. And everybody, it, it, I was upset when you told your best friend <laughs> and she had to look him up. I was, I was, I was genuinely sad for a moment. <laughs> like a moment in my life is now gone <laughs> because you told me she had to look him up. And I was like, why? Why? How? Where? No. Why? (laughs) So, the author we are covering in this series, one of our favorites. Yes, 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 yes. He's definitely the tallest author so far at 6'5". Very tall. He was a big man, science fiction comedy writer, took us on a trip around the universe in a heart of gold. I'm sure a lot of people have already caught on to who it is. He's a lover of music, technology, women, fast cars, performing live, and spending as much time as possible figure out, figuring out how to get out of writing. He was a true celebrity, even though he was usually insecure in his status as one. He was an honorary python, performed once with Pink Floyd, Climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in a rhinoceros costume. He wrote for Doctor Who. He wrote about a detective that uses chaos theory instead of clues. He created computer games, wrote stage skits. 
even did some acting, once in the nude. But he is by far best known for his five-part trilogy that taught us the importance of the number 42 and to always have your towel handy. Ladies, gentlemen, paranoid androids, and Vugans, I give you the one, the only, the fruit, Douglas, Douglas Adams. Adams! You can see my wife right now. She is just, she's all tense with giddiness. Got a big smile on her face. I'm excited. I, I love Douglas Adams. I know. And we even, I even, for this episode, we even got a couple skits that uh, he did with the footlights that we will get into later on in the episode that we will cover and uh, do for you. Stephanie has never seen him or read him. So I'm I'm really excited to see. I haven't if she seen laughs. the re- the skits. Yeah, but I've read. These aren't in the these aren't in the the Hitchhiker books. Yes, but I I've read the Hitchhiker well, yes. books. Yes. So our main source for this series, because we always cite our sources, comes from two books by people who knew Douglas very well. I wish you were here. The official biography of Douglas Adams by Nick Webb. And The Frood, the authorized and very official history of Douglas Adams and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There are many books about Douglas. These two were great, packed, filled to the brim with stories and facts, even if they didn't always go in chronological order. Which kind of drove me crazy when you're trying to write out uh, a story script about following his life, how they kind of jumped around. The books are great, but when you're trying to do that, it gets really annoying. Um, the Fruit is mostly about Hitchhiker, and I Wish You Were Here covers everything else. They both go into detail about things, but in their different ways. Um, Fruit, when we cover the meaning of lift, actually means a very well put together gentleman. As in, that Fruit really knows where his towel is. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So, let's fucking get to it. To the man himself. Douglas Noel Adams, and yes, his initials spell out DNA, was born in Cambridge, England on March 11th, 1952, to Christopher Adams and Janet Donovan Adams. The string of coincidences, coincidences which went into the delivery of this unusually large, gangling baby, said by maternity witnesses to resemble some sort of beached ocean mammal, or when dressed in his nappy, a two-scale Gandhi, were researched as far back as the 18th century by Nick Webb. So, let's get to know the Adamses. The Adams family. Dr. Alexander Maxwell Adams, 1792 to 1860, was a respected and renowned humane medic and author. His son, Dr. James Maxwell Adams, 1817 to 1899, was the inventor of the widely used Adams inhaler and a fierce early promoter of animal rights, penning a laceration of the practice of lion taming. His grandson, Douglas Kinshin Adams, M.B., CHB, MA, BSC, MD, and FRCP, 1891-1967, set the bar the highest. He fought in the Navy during the Great War before returning to Glasgow, where he became an internationally renowned lecturer on all matter of medical issues, winning the Bella Houston Gold Medal for his thesis on 
I pronounced this so many times in my head, and I probably got it wrong every time, so I'm just going to try it. Jericholi disseminated sclerosis and becoming one of the first to recognize the serious nature of the condition, such as MS. Hmm. Yes. Born 1927, Christopher Adams grew to be a giant of a man, 6'4", only an inch shorter than his son would eventually reach, and was intelligent, swarthily bearded and trifled with by few. He was a very large, not just tall, he was a large man. But it is possible that his father's success was something to which Christopher could never quite reconcile himself. He broke the mold of the Adams line by eschewing medicine and science for theology. And it was immediately after graduation from St. John's College, Cambridge, at the start of 1950s, beginning studies for a postgrad in divinity at Ridley College with every intention of taking holy orders, that young Christopher met and wooed a nurse at the Addenbrooke's Hospital, Janet Donovan. Janet was the daughter of Irish immigrants and the great-niece of Benjamin Franklin Weedkind, a hugely influential German actor-director, sexual boundary-breaker pioneer of the theater of the absurd, and star of satirical cabaret. Christopher and Janet were married in 1951, moved to Essex as Christopher abandoned his religious ambitions and began to earn, began to earn a living as a teacher. Hmm. Yes. So he got with the girl whose uncle was a creator of... Sex cabaret. Not a creator, but a like star. Like funny porn. Something like that. Yeah. In a theater. Theater, funny porn. Yeah. Comedy porn. Like, uh, who do I deliver this pizza to? <laughs> I don't think it bang, was... Bang, bang, I don't think it was that kind of porn. I don't think it was... That. Well, it was cabaret, so was there was cabaret. more singing and dancing. Yeah, but I don't think so. there was any like penetration or anything like that. I think it was most like softcore. Cinemax. Okay. Christopher rarely comes out of this story of Douglas, Douglas's childhood well. Janet and Christopher found it extremely hard to make ends meet, particularly after the arrival of the daughter, Susan. And yet, the master of the house was used to his luxuries, like nice cars and expensive tobacco. It's always hard when you don't have any money, and yet one person in the relationship is spending it all on stuff that you obviously cannot afford. Yeah, once you have kids, your luxurious lifestyle... Well, he grew up with money. And now that he's on his own, he doesn't want to give up that money. Even though he doesn't he doesn't want to give up the lifestyle. Yeah, I, I know a lot of parents like that. and So do I. And their kids suffer for it. Their kids look like shit while they look like they're living it up. Yep. Douglas was three when he reportedly showed some signs of not quite normality, being a silent, neurotic child, constantly weighing up his place in the world within his own head, unable to pronounce any slight judgment. Quote, I was the only kid who anybody I knew had ever seen actually walk into a lamppost with his eyes wide open. Everybody assumed that there must be something going on inside because there sure as hell didn't seem to be anything going on on the outside. At the age of four, a visit from a local clergyman coincided with young Douglas's struggles to communicate. Da, ma, ma, da, ma. Would it be dada or mama? Well, they soon found out when the ecstatic cries of 
damn, 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 failed to please father or mother or the clergyman for that matter. <sighs> Only Douglas Adams' first words would be damn, damn, damn. That's that's awesome. His first words at four. You see that with a lot of people. Like James Earl Jones had a stutter. He didn't really talk to. He was like 12. And now he's got one of the most iconic voices of all time. A lot of people are like that. Just takes them a while to come out of their shell. I, I suppose, but I mean, I had all three of my kids talking before they were one. Well, Douglas is an odd one. And he's, he, he continues that on into uh, his teenagers, which you'll see. Okay. As if Adam Sr., Christopher's attitude to familiar harmony wasn't problematic enough. While his son was still only tiny, Christopher had retreated to an isolated island off Iona with two Cambridge friends, a physicist and a cleric, to perform some arcane metaphysical experiments, the details of which were taken to the grave by all three, but it left Adams a nervous wreck for some time. Allegedly, some form of group hallucination was experimented, but Christopher never discussed any details, preferring instead to write an epic poem. Quote, a fusion between mysticism and science and the eternal battle between good and evil, which has long since disappeared. I really wanted to read the poem to find out what the fuck happened to him on that island, but it's gone. Hmm. This unpredictable behavior surely did little to alleviate Janet's struggles as a homemaker, and the marriage was not one that either party seemed willing to allow to drag on too far beyond the boundaries of bearability. Few decisions could be more painful to take, but finally Janet was to flee to her parents' house in Brentwood, Essex, taking the children with her. Nonetheless, Adam's new surroundings would swap one major biographical theme, money, with a far more positive one, zoology. Money for animals. Well, he went from money, the theme was they either didn't have it or when they had it, it left, to surrounded by animals 24-7. Yes. His Irish grandparents' household was far more hectic and furry than one he had grown to, grown used to. Grandfather Donovan reportedly took to his bed on his retirement, declaring, quote, I've done my bit, and stayed there until his death seven years later. So he stayed in bed for seven years. While his wife enjoyed being Brentwood's answer to St. Francis of Assisi, the local RSPCA lady offering homes to all four-legged or otherwise friends and foes that needed one. Savage but toothless dogs. Cats who would inspire a lifetime of feline sadism in Douglas's comedy. Myriad rabbits and a resident pigeon known as Pidge, who perched above a doorway lovingly neutering a china egg. Aww. A permanent symbol of futile optimism. And amid this arc roll call was Douglas sneezing violently at his own estimation, about once every 15 seconds. He was allergic to something. Quote, There are those who say that I tend to think and write in one-liners. And if there's any truth to this criticism, then it was almost certainly while I lived at my grandmother's that the habit developed. Because he can only get one sentence out at a time. Yes, that makes sense. Even from a small boy, these sneezes must have been resonant. 
His first exposure to a peer group at Miss Potter's private primary school on Pimrose Hill brought it home to Douglas that he was likely to spend his life standing out from the crowd in at least one regard. Quote, My mother has a long nose. My father had a wide one. I got both of them combined. It's large. As a boy, I was teased unmercifully about my nose for years until one day I happened to catch sight of my profile in a pair of angled mirrors, and I had to admit, it was actually pretty funny. This wise acceptance of his amusing features came just in time for his first taste of big school as he was, he was accepted into Brentwood Prep at the age of seven and continued to grow at an alarming rate. The cost of public, i.e. private, education was not something the Donovan family would have considered, but the fees would be taken care of thanks to his father. One year after his arrival at prep school, Douglas received a new stepmother, Judith Stewart who married Christopher Adams in July 1960. They moved into an impressive country home, Derry in Stoneden Massey, near Brentwood. Uh, she was pretty well off. She came from a wealthy family. Christopher took ownership of his dream Aston Martin, and Douglas and Susan started traveling between their homes 10 miles apart. The madness at Grandma's interspeared with opulent weekends at Stoneden Massey. Within two years, they were to welcome a half-sister, Heather, in addition to a new stepsister, and to new stepsisters, Rosemary and Karina, who were just a few years older. Judith came from a wealthy family, and even though Sue and Douglas weren't technically her responsibility to educate, she thought that they were entitled to the best education possible and paid for their schooling herself. Nice. It was here where he would meet lifelong friend Griff Reese Jones. Now... If anybody out there has ever felt like you stick out in school, like everybody's staring at you all the time, I didn't. I always felt ignored, which I was fine with. I know a lot of people felt like they just kind of stuck out. Well, Douglas stuck out like a sore thumb. By age 12, he was already six foot tall. Very, very tall. Adams towered over several teachers, and his form masters felt no compunction to spare the shy boy from being singled out, allegedly telling the class on school outings to meet by Adams, as he was the most unmissable landmark in the vicinity. That's just awful. Yeah, the awkwardness the boy felt at this physical prominence was magnified ten times when his mother's plea to the headmaster for permission for him to wear long trousers was not just denied, when he was finally allowed to progress to covered knees, the uniform supplier had none in his size. So, he was to be the only pupil still wearing shorts, suffering, quote, four weeks of the greatest humiliation and embarrassment known to man, or rather, to that most easily humiliated and embarrassed of all creatures, the overgrown 12-year-old boy. Aw, poor doggy. Thankfully, his size would not be Douglas's defining attribute at school, due in no small part to his English teacher, Frank Halford. Adam's infant silence had remained a problem, and he admitted, quote, They could never work out at school whether I was terribly clever or terribly stupid. Halford took Adams for English composition class, and one Thursday morning, March 7, 1962, just before lunch, the usually stringent teacher's red pen recorded a unique score for a pupil's work, 
top marks, 10 out of 10, for a no for a now lost adventure story about hidden treasure, which Halford remembered being, quote, technically and creatively perfect, a remarkable piece of work for a boy that age. It was, and still, to this day, the only 10 out of 10 he had ever given a student. It was something that Douglas would look back on for the rest of his life as inspiration, especially when plagued with every author's evil nemesis, writer's block. Ah, uh, I know that bastard well. Most addictive source to a boyhood reading thrills in this period was the Eagle comic, which had been launched at the start of the 1950s. At age of 13, bolstered by Halford's perfect mark, Adams was inspired not just to hungrily gobble up the Eagle stories every week, but to turn the comic into an interactive entertainment by writing for it. A letter he sent in went as follows. Dear Editor, The sweat was dripping down my face into my lap, making my clothes very wet and sticky. I sat there, watching. I was trembling violently as I sat, looking at the small slot, waiting, ever waiting. My nails dug into my flesh as I clenched my hands. I passed my arm over my hot, wet face, down which sweat was pouring. The suspense was unbearable. I bit my lip in anticipation and stopped trembling with the terrible burden of anxiety. Suddenly, the slot opened, and in dropped the mail. I grabbed at my eagle and ripped off the wrapping paper. My ordeal was over for another week. D.N. Adams, 12, Brentwood, Essex. That is awesome. Merely a letter, maybe. But besides gaining huge kudos from his classmates, Adams was to boast that the 10 shilling he received for it could at the time have practically bought him a yacht. He also felt, in very little time, that he could do better. And within one month, his second moment of fame was to come a proper printed narrative. Short story. London, Transport, Lost Property Office. This is it, said Mr. Smith, looking in the window. As he went in, he tripped over a little step and almost crashed through the glass door. I could be dangerous. I must remember it when I go out, he muttered. Can I help you? asked the lost property officer. Yes, I've lost something on the 86 bus yesterday. Well, what was it you lost? asked the officer. I'm afraid I can't remember, said Mr. Smith. Well, I can't help you then, said the exasperated officer. Was anything found on the bus? asked Mr. Smith. I'm afraid not, but can you remember anything about this thing? said the officer, desperately trying to help. Yes, I can remember that it was very bad, whatever it was. Anything else? Ah, yes, now come to think of it, it was something like a sieve, said Mr. Smith as he put his elbows on the highly polished counter and rested his chin on his hands. Suddenly, his chin met the counter with a resounding crack. But before the officer could assist him up, Mr. Smith jumped triumphantly into the air. Thank you very much, he said. For what, said the officer. I found it, said Mr. Smith. Found what? My memory, said Mr. Smith as he turned around, tripped over the step, and smashed through the glass door. <laughs> and he was just 13 when he wrote that? Well, 13, yeah. That's excellent. Despite it being aired twice in autumn of 1963, Douglas claimed to have missed the first Doctor Who adventure, but he recalled that from the Doctor's second outing in the TARDIS, particularly the first ever cliffhanger, introducing the Daleks and their terrifying metal villainy, 
Doctor Who became the one program that he dared not miss. Literally appointment viewing in the school's shared television lounge. The first documented reaction to Who from the schoolboy was to send it up. Armed with, a flash, with the flashy gadgetry of a new tape recorder, he sat down and wrote a whole episode of the thrilling caper, Doctor Witch, featuring the Doctor's struggle against a race of Daleks, unaccountably fueled by Rice Krispies. <laughs> and played the result to the rest of Barnard House at 1964's Christmas Festi Festival. I almost said Festival. Christi Christmas Festival. At the age of only 12, the strapping six-footer had taken his first steps toward creating science fiction comedy in audio, and above all, had written something that had made his friends laugh. This wasn't the only element of school life which would have echoes for Douglas's work later on. As a fixture within the debating society, M.J. Simpson notes that Adams would have had to chosen a side on the motion proposed in October 1965. This house thinks that Brentwood bypass will not benefit the people of Brentwood. Throughout the 1950s and beyond, Britain's green and pleasant land was being carved up by motorways and covered in concrete to the horror of many. And whichever side of the argument Adams fell on, it can be presumed that, well, you've got to buy build bypasses would never settle the matter. Anybody who's read Hitchhiker knows exactly what that is. Yes. Comedy and science fiction were, it seems, the two most crucial fuels to Adam's burgeoning creativity and in those sponge-like formative years, but neither was the most important to him. In the early 1960s, Bloom with new ideas and both art form, both art forms, but that was nothing compared to what the arrival of the Beatles did to a whole generation and to no child more intensely than Douglas Adams. Douglas used to tell a story of sneaking out of school Friday, March 20th, 1964, to sneak into town to buy Can't Buy Me Love from Radiogram in the high street. He fell over, badly cut his knee on the way back, though he pointed out that knees are self-repairing, whereas self-repairing textiles are still decades off. Lacking his own record player, he snuck into Maltron's, into Matron's office, the head matron of the school, and managed to play the record three times, bleeding profusely before being caught, banished, bandaged, and punished. Quote, I vaguely remember my school days. There it was going on in the background while I was trying to listen to the Beatles. <laughs> Bach, the Beatles, and Pink Floyd may be said to be Adam's greatest musical hang-ups. Beside his love for Donovan, Procol Horum, and Dire Straits, and others, artists who would often be generically branded as dad rock in decades to come, but who were at this stage exciting, progressive, and new. In his Brentwood adolescence, Adams had also been fortunate to catch early per performances from David Bowie in the Lower Third, who were booked to play the school's Christmas dance in 1965 a fair while before Space Oddity would make David Jones of South London an alien icon around the planet. Oh, that's awesome. Even more significantly, just over a week before that dance, the Brentwood Folk Club had booked a visiting American balladeer to play at the school, and Paul Simon's performance would inspire Adams more than any other act to make music himself. Quote, When I learned to play the guitar... I was taught by Paul Simon. He does not know this. Aww. 
Also, in 1964, Janet, his mother, remarried a local vet named Ron Thrift, a man for whom there seems to have been nothing but affection and respect. Soon after their marriage, Ron and Janet produced a son and a daughter of their own. The elder, Jane Thrift, who Douglas loved with the fierce fraternal protectiveness, is known in the family as Little Jane. And then came her younger brother, James. So, to recap, Douglas has one full sister, Sue Adams, two stepsisters, Rosemary and Karina, one paternal half-sister, Heather Adams, two maternal half-siblings, Jane and James. Later in life, he made strenuous efforts to get them all together as an adult, perhaps to recreate the family that he had missed as a child. Adams had no problem mixing with the intellectual crowd. Near the end of his time at Brentwood, he was invited to join the school's exclusive literary club, Candlesticks. Members had to write and perform a poem about a candle to gain entry. And, by a stroke of luck, a spot of spring cleaning in Brentwood School in 2014 turned up efforts from both his friend Griff and Douglas. The latter, Douglas's, dated January 1970, called A Dissertation on the Task of Writing a Poem on a Candle and the Account of Some of the Difficulties Thereto Pertaining. <laughs> Such a long-ass fucking title. Uh, so he pretty much wrote it under duress. He did it because he wanted to, but he was uh, but he didn't want to have to write it about a candle. Here's a little piece of it. I resist the temptation for this declamation to reach out to literary height. For high aspiration in such orat- oration would seem quite remarkably trite. So I thought something pithy and succinct and, and clever was exactly the right thing to write. For nights I sat musing and musing and musing, whilst burning the midnight oil, my scratchings seemed futile, my muse seemed quite mute, while my work proved to be barren toil. I puzzled and thought and wrestled and fought till my midnight oil was exhausted. So I furthered my writing by dim candle lighting and found, to my joy, this of course did. The trick, for I flowered, my work, candle-powered, was inspired, both witty and slick. <laughs> so it's not so much about the candle as it is about the fact that he can't write because his oil lamp went down and he had to light a candle to write it. That's hilarious. Douglas went on to describe the candle burning and the work of genius requiring the replacement doggerel he was reciting, which just shows that by this stage, the teenager had developed a major inability to take such things particularly seriously. He was far more at home writing and performing sketches for house reviews, inspired by his, by his greatest influence of them all, John Cleese. Aww. He insisted, quote, I wanted to be a writer-performer like the Python. In fact, I wanted to be John Cleese, and it took me some time to realize that that job was taken. Only John Cleese can be John Cleese. He does try to fill in for him for a little bit, though. The debut of Monty Python's Flying Circus in October of 1969 only heightened the feeling of urgency. Nothing mattered now more than the Pythons, except, of course, the Beatles who George Harrison insisted had passed on a torch to the Python mob in the first place. Adams saw both cultural giants as, quote, messages out of the void saying there are people out there who know what it's like to be you. The sketch show had already won Adams as a devoted viewer, but the young science fiction fan was not prepared for something completely different when the seventh episode aired at the end of November. 
after a typically silly preamble, the episode, You're No Funny Anymore, suddenly completed, completely changed direction to become an extended narrative about an alien invasion when a race of interstellar, interstellar blank manges put into action their plan to change the population of Britain into Scotsmen so they could land on Earth and become Wimbledon champions. <laughs> Python's mixture of zany sketch comedy and sci-fi cliche was exactly what Douglas had been obsessing about since his early teens, and his heroes had got there first. Adams learned that Cleese, not to mention Graham Chapman and Eric Idle, had been at Cambridge just like his father, and that all of them had been stars of the Footlights Club. That, he concluded, with no shadow of doubt, was where he was headed after Brentwood. Ultimately, this new plan could have been derailed by his unimpressive grades, and his first real girlfriend, Helen Cutler, from the nearby Covent School, providing a worthy distraction from his studies. But, fortunately, an essay on the revival of religious poetry which, of course, managed to crowbar in a mention of John Lennon, was to win Douglas an exhibition to his father's college of St. John's beginning in October 1971. Safe in the knowledge that his place studying English literature at St. John, John's College was secure for the following autumn, Adams was free to indulge in that great near necessity for middle-class teenagers at this time the gap year. What? I mean, we were just talking about it. We both disagree that our 18-year-old shouldn't have taken a gap year. I, but no. I believe that this is the perfect year to take a gap year. Because you can really figure out what you want. You can tell all, any, all the schools that you apply to or whatever. I was, I, I had to take it off for COVID. I didn't have a choice. I had to stay home watch my, well, my, my brothers and my sister. Yeah, but the reason he's taking off for well, a gap year that, is that might be different than the is excuse stupid. He have, but that is what it is. He's taking a gap year because of a girl. Yeah, we all do stupid shit more that age. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Or are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over the beard struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them. My beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes, and use our new exclusive discount code, AUDIO15, at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face! There was another aspect to Adam's maturing views of life at this stage besides 
hitching around Europe and growing lengths of his hair. And although it's a rite of passage many of us undergo in our teenage years, but for Douglas, it was one in which crucially freed his mind to explore all the dimensions of reality he could in his later work. As he told American Atheist in 2001, quote, As a teenager, I was a committed Christian. It was in my background. I used to work for the school chapel, in fact. Then, one day, when I was about 18, I was walking down the street, and I heard a street evangelist, and dutifully stopped to listen. As I listened, began to be borne in on me that he was talking complete nonsense, and I had better have a bit of a think about it. Experience would send Adams on a slow progression through shades of agnosticism for most of his career, only arriving at outright atheism relatively late in life. See, I had a, a similar, I'm not going to go in depth on religion or anything, but I had a similar thing that made me question somewhat of faith in going to church because I used to go to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. And then I I watched Dogma. <laughs> <laughs> and Leave it to Kevin Smith to make you question everything. Well, yeah, and he he was raised a Catholic, too. Yes, he was. And now he's atheist. Mm -hmm. But he'll still go to church for his mom and his family and stuff like that. But he brought up some really good points in there. I mean, dogma is more of a Catholic type thing. But he brought up some really good points that, you know, you don't have to go to church to worship. You don't have to go to church to have faith. Stuff like that. So... You know, I, I can still have my faith, but I don't have to go to church. Well, and with Douglas, you could see his agnosticism and atheism really seep through into his writing when he talks about how, um, well, very, very beginning of Hitchhiker, in the beginning, the universe was created. And many people think that, that was a bad idea. And how uh, the babblefish proves that God doesn't exist. So it really bleeds into his into his writing. Yes. There is still a greater taboo surrounding some kid thumbing a lift from a random stranger today than there was 50 years ago. Life on the road, thumb out, nonetheless exemplified the height of bohemian behavior when Douglas caught the hitchhiking bug. By July of, of 1971, Douglas had saved up a few quid. He had an enormous coat. He had his left-handed guitar. He had his copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe by Australian writer Ken Welsh, borrowed and never returned, which he admitted counts as stolen. This snarky guidebook was the slightly cheaper option for any freewheeling traveler looking to explore the continent with only a few dollars a day. Its appeal can be summed up in it by its entry for Albania as a hitchhiking, hitchhiking proposition, which it simply read, forget it. Douglas initially made his way to Austria, earning a few shillings to play by playing his guitar in bars along the way, but his funds were already low by the time he had reached Innsbruck. He was to recall, quote, So much in my memory of hitchhiking, which is really vivid, was really, how am I going to survive? How do I get through this day? Yeah, you can't hitchhike today in today's time. You not I'm not talking about the COVID thing, but I I would refuse to pick up a hitchhiker. Now, yeah. But back then it was pretty common. Yeah, even in the 90s I still wouldn't because you had all those murderers from well, You weren't driving in the 90s. No, but 
when I was driving with my dad or yeah. my egg donor. I know people who pick up hitchhikers all the time, but it's just something he likes to do. He has fun with it. More power to you. But I know I've never pitched, picked up one. I wouldn't either. But again, this is America, and that's Europe. Completely different. You pick up a hitchhiker now, you'll probably be murdered. Pick up a hitchhiker in Europe, as long as they're not coming straight out of a hostel, you're probably okay. This is the anecdote which Douglas told to interviewers so many thousands of times throughout his life that it became more famous for his claim to not actually remember whether or not it was even remotely true than it ever was in his own right. The story abides that in a field in Innsbruck, now reputed to be nothing but a stretch of Autobahn, Douglas lay gazing up with beer goggles at a particularly astounding vista of twinkling constellations. Half of his day had been spent at the roadside scanning the horizon for a handy lift to a new situation, and as his perspective took a shift from the horizontal to the vertical, it seemed that much the same desire applied, and he pondered for the very first time what it would be like to stick, your, stick out your thumb and hitchhike not just across Europe, but the entire Milky Way. Quote, I was laying drunk in a field in Innsbruck. Not particularly drunk, just the sort of drunk you get when you've had a couple stiff gossers after not having eaten for two days straight on account of being penniless hitchhiker. We're talking a mild inability to stand up. Night was beginning to fall on my field as it spun lazily underneath me. When the stars came out, I thought, oh, that looks much more interesting up there. A title fell out of the sky. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It seemed like a book someone ought to write, but it didn't occur to me that I should be the one to do it. If only someone would write it, then I, for one, would be off like a shot. Having had this thought, I promptly fell asleep and forgot about it for six years. Ugh. When he finally got to Cambridge, all he really cared about was getting into Footlights, the local exclusive comedy review. It's where legends like Eric Idle, Jermaine Greer, and Clive James all got their start. Unfortunately, it had gone quite downhill from there. The review was being ran by snob-nosed, unfunny elitists, and Adams was not in the least bit impressed with what he saw. Nonetheless, Adams had programmed himself to become a budding python, and with his outstanding appearance and creativity, he felt that he may just be the one to turn the club's fortune around. He would reportedly only complete and hand in three essays throughout his three years at Cambridge. But study was just a marginal hindrance. What matters was making audiences laugh. There was absolutely no doubt in his mind that Footlights is where he belonged, from where he would set off on the road of fame and his overgrown puppyish enthusiasm and self-belief were two of the main things which would put people on their guard against him on first contact. In his first week, he was to bump into his contemporary, John Cantor, a similarly lackey, curly mop law student from Gonville and Cusk, Caius College, and quickly informed him as they ambled across the quad, that he was going to be the president of Footlights, an assertion vehemently poo-pooed by Cantor as he already planned to take the job himself in his third year. But, to Adam's chagrin, joining Footlights wasn't just a question of signing a piece of paper. You first had to be invited, and then you had to impress. And, to impress a bunch of theatricals who cast an instant sneer at young da Douglas's ambitions, 
and equally failed to impress in one bit. Quote, my first experience was very off-putting because I found everyone, everybody rather grand and aloof, rather cold and unencouraging. Though John Lloyd would sum up the Footlights Committee more succinctly as, quote, a bunch of wankers. <laughs> you wanker. So, like many Footlight rebels in the past, Douglas turned his back on the Smug Club and joined the Cambridge University Light Entertainment Society, having seen their review Funny Bloody Funny early in his first term, despite sharing many great alums. Kulse never had the cachet of Footlights, and after only one show, where the whole cast was booed off the stage at the Kelmsford Prison, Adams was determined to go through with Plan A. But he soon learned that most of the really inventive Cambridge comedy was luckily to ever make it into one of New Footlights productions. While the real mortar of the university's humorous output was created at regular college smokers, late night arenas where there were far more there was far more freedom to try material out and shove a few boundaries around in a less snooty environment. They were far more akin to Brentwood's house review, and the frustrated freshman was soon more at home. So, Footlights is WWE, all these smokers of the independent scene. Get away with a lot more, and honestly, watch it. It's a lot more fun. Yes. Adam's first close friend on campus was Northern Irish history student, now professor, Keith Jeffrey. And in no time at all, Douglas convinced Keith to form a duo for an audition with an impersonation of a fountain, which involved Jeffrey pumping Douglas's arms up, arm up and down, triggering, triggering a jet of water spat out to the front row. This failed to impress many of that generation's footlighters, but luckily the club's victualler was most amused, and his name was Simon Jones. Decades later, he was to insist that the water-spouting business was, quote, funny, much more so than the pseudo-intellectual crap I had to endure. A shade older at 21, the smart Wiltshire-born Wiltshire actor soon became Adam's major supporter within Footlights and an instant friend. Douglas decided that he was, quote, totally unlike the rest of the committee, actually friendly and helpful, all the things the others weren't. He encouraged me, and from then on, I got on increasingly well in Footlights. He may have gained access to the club, but that was still a far cry from actually being cast in any reviews. Undaunted, just as at Brentwood, Douglas decided that he had to take the initiative and put on his own shows. He happened upon fellow English scholar Will Adams and his economic, his economic student comedy partner, Bloody Martin Smith of Croydon. Again, anybody who's read Hitchhiker will know that line. The former, tall and hairy, the latter, slight and bespectacled. At his first documented smoker, the cornily titled Prepare to Drop Them Now towards the end of his first year. His first year was drawing to a close with very little to show in the way of bathing an audience's adoring laughter. In fact, one of the highlights of the whole period came not at Cambridge, but at Warwick University, where Douglas had hitched down to visit his girlfriend, Helen, guitar in tow, and ended up in a late-night student hall jam with a pre-fame Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits. They actually uh, 
played at the same time trying to impress impress the same group of people. And every time Mark would do something, he'd do something better. And they kept going back and forth with it. Oh, almost, that's so Almost like neat. dueling banjo. Nevertheless, Adams did not panic. He simply built up relationships and prepared himself for a busy second year packed with hilarity. This plan got off to a good start when Sue Lim cast him as violent Irishman Sir Lucius O'Trigger in her production of Sheridan's The Rivals. This was, however, to Douglas's friends, a first taste of his sheer danger as a performer. Sir Lucius, sword drawn, Adams had a lethal reach and a lack of coordination that met his that made his fa- fellow cast members recoil from the stage for fear of their lives. <laughs> Quote, I was a slightly strange actor. There tend to be things I could do well, and other things I couldn't begin to do. I couldn't do dwarves, for example. I had a lot of trouble with dwarf parts. The Smith-Adams writing duo always worked closely together, incorporating Douglas into their own. They remarked that their eager new collaborator was particularly adept at starting sketches and would race up the hill to their college, Fitzwilliam, and sit the pair down with a grinning impatience to share his inspired opening monologues, such as Beyond the Infinite, a show opening 2001-inspired monologue from 1974 about space's entry into the Guinness Book of World Records for being so damn big. There's nothing bigger than space, so it's got to get the Guinness Book of World Records for being so big. It went something like this. The audience was plunged into darkness, and a deep voice intoned, Far out in the depths of the cosmos, beyond the furthest reach of man's perception, amidst the swirling mist of unknown galaxies, where lost worlds roll eternally against the gateway of infinity, Inexorably on through millions of light years of celestial darkness we call space. Space where man dares to brave indescribable element horrors. Space where man boldly splits infinitives that no man has split before. I can't begin to tell you how far it is. I mean, it's so far. You may think it's a long way down the street to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Many of you might remember that last line again. From Hitchhiker. This practice was not strictly limited to his own comedic earworms either. In one early smoker, John Cantor took to being took to the stage as an aged, flat-capped northerner with a face like thunder and began a miserable monologue with the words, Life. Don't talk to me about life. This was another phrase which refused to budge from Douglas consciousness. Again, anybody that knows Hitchhiker knows that knows that sentence. Prior to formally forming, forming the renegade comedy outfit, Adam Smith Adams, a sort of guerrilla group, in the spring of 1973, Will and Martin staged their own smoker, the Heel Fire Club, with Douglas appearing only in a couple minor roles, They had been inspired by a golden couple one year above who were equally placed on the fringes of the footlights. The talented Mary Allen and her boyfriend, freshly indoctrinated into the club despite his misgivings, John Hardress Wilford Lloyd. In time, Adam's friendship with the dashing polymath Lloyd would become one of the closest and most complicated 
in a lifetime of intense friendships. But at Cambridge, the two were not close, merely fellow members of a sprawling network of sketch performers. Adrift from his partnership, Douglas had turned to musical comedy as an outlet for his material, and John and Mary had booked him for their own smoker in February called I Don't Know, I've Never Looked, <laughs> performing one of his own compositions, A Song for Stupid People. Accompanied by his folky finger-picking, although not the greatest singer since post-puberty, Douglas specialized in rambling lyrics which were a blessing for any subsequent subsequent sketch which required much setting up. It went like this. Douglas, alone on stage with his guitar. I was walking down the street today, or maybe it was yesterday. In fact, it may have been last week. Yes, it was probably last week. I was walking down the street when who are who on earth should I chance to meet? Yes, who on earth did I meet that day, which was yesterday or the day before yesterday? Yes, now I remember the time. I mean, it was yesterday at 2.15, no 3.15, two weeks ago. I really would quite like to know because next time I can get to the interesting bit. Turns, walks off the stage frustrated. <laughs> oh. By this time, he and Helen had gone their separate ways. Remember his, his girlfriend that kept him from getting good grades. Mm -hmm. Indeed, he had fallen for a fellow Cambridge student in his second year, but was beaten to her wooing by new friend Michael Bywater, who would compound his offense by marrying the girl in question. Bywater was famous at Cambridge for turning up late to a Footlights rehearsal with the killer excuse, quote, Sorry, I've just crashed a plane. Which he did. He was a pilot, and he had crashed a plane that afternoon. <laughs> How many planes did he crash if he uh, used it constantly? That, well, no, he only used that one once. He was constantly late for rehearsals. And they told him, if you're late one more time, you're out. The next time they had rehearsal, he was three hours late. When he showed up, everybody was pissed off at him, and he said, sorry, I've just crashed a plane. Nice excuse, I suppose. Yeah. Spending the summer of 1973 with his mother's young family, Douglas found himself a summer job helping to build barns down in the West, Count West Country and lost control of a tractor on a steep hill. Goes down the steep hill, runs into the ditch, into the road, barrels out, breaks his pelvis. Although he did as much damage to the road as he did to himself, another unsettling coincidence was Coincidence was, in that very similar accident occurred on the exact same spot 20 years later, this time proving to be fatal. The victim being another Douglas Adams. That is creepy. He cursed it. Mr. Adams' pelvis by Yulvon District Hospital ran a credit in the program for the first Adam Smith Adams presentation of the new term. They turned it into a bit. This presentation completely called The Patter of Tiny Minds, which ran from, from the 15th to the 17th of November. Hot on the heels of his first outing for Tiny Minds came that year's Footlights pantomime, Cinderella. Adams must have been content that he now was a linchpin of the club, bagging the plum roll of King Groovy, the positively horizontally laid-back father of Prince Charming. Now being resident within St. John's, John's itself, room Q-1, 
sharing with friends Nick Burton and Johnny Simpson. For this role, he drew on the behavior of Johnny, of whom Adams would recall, quote, he had that nervous, sort of hyper-energetic way of trying to appear relaxed. He was always trying to be so cool and relaxed, but he could never sit still. He was a certain transatlantic post-hippie idea of cool shared by this generation of undergraduates, and in a few years, Douglas happily admitting Zaphod Beeblebrock's debt to Johnny's studied Lausch grooviness. In other words, if you've read The Hitchhiker, you know who Zaphod is. Yes. Based on Johnny Simpson. Nice. Mary Allen opting to take the stage name Adams for equity purposes, filled the female roles, and Lloyd, who was less than two weeks into his new job as a junior producer at the BBC Radio Light Entertainment, found time to complete the cast under the pseudonym of John Smith, forming the trope Adam Smith Adam Smith Adams. The group gelled so well that the letterheads were ordered under the moniker of Tiny Minds with a view to launching the line as a full-time sketch outfit. Although Douglas would make a memorable appearance as a mad pirate called Mr. Wyfront Silver, giving a terribly urbane TV interview from a hijacked London bus he was running as a pirate ship, the main theme of the evening was cat shaving. Where the Monty Python team were happy to disp dispense with punchlines, a number of the Bush Theater Show's sketches, far apart enough for the motif to catch the audience off guard, tend to close on a suggestion of the irresistible sensuous temptation to deprive a feline of its fur. Culminating in the torch song, Sheer Romance. <laughs> performed my, by Mary Adams. Well, babe, it often seems I've always known you in my dreams. You came to me beneath the moon that starry night in early June. Well, babe, I think I love you. You make my heart go pitter-pat. Feeling so rom romantic, I think I go shave a cat. I mean, I guess that's the epitome <laughs> of romance there. I mean, I guess you... You've never really felt truly romantic until you went to shave a cat. <laughs> the show got rave reviews. However, Adams was something of a liability on stage, and many of his closest friends had to admit that his inability to keep a straight face when delivering a funny line, the contorted smirk flashing across Douglas' lips every time he had a zinger to deliver, was often off-putting for the cast and audience. So, although some of their writings would be in the Big Footlights review, Douglas himself would not be. Hmm. With his Cambridge days coming to an end, with a B.A. in English literature and the fizzling out death of his long-held dream to dazzle in Footlights Review, he wondered, how is he going to kickstart the next Monty Python now? The Footlights show was viewed by many on opening night, even some of the Pythons themselves, to horrible reviews. In fact, the only part of Graham, the only part Graham Chapman was said to have liked was the Adam Smith Adams bit. Go something like this. Now, before I formally open this meeting, there's something very important I have to say. As yet, I don't know who to point the finger at, but I notice someone here. 
What they have done, they have done in such a cunning, secretive, furtive sort of way, carefully covering their tracks, that not only do I not know which of you has done it, I'm not sure what it is you have done yet exactly. But be warned, I am on my guard. Mr. Secretary, possibly could you start the meeting by reading the minutes of the last meeting? Certainly. The minutes of the 42nd meeting of the Crowley and District Paranoid Society. The meeting was duly convened by Mr. Smith, gave us a very spirited talk about the holes in which his next door neighbor had been drilling into his walls. Then he went on to say, "Here, Someone's been tampering with these notes! It's very British humor. <laughs> if Adam Smith Adams had one calling card, it was the Paranoid Society sketch. It would be brought out of the mothballs for a number of desperate reviews for years to come, culminating in an all-star performance over 10 years later as part of a cancer charity fundraiser called Comedians Do It On Stage. It was just the kind of simple but barking concept which appealed to Chapman's sensibility, and the admission that he wished he had written it himself must have sent Adam's spirits soaring. They must have then soared into the stratosphere when he felt Graham's home address being pushed into his hand with an open invitation to pop around for gin and sketch writing. Hmm. John Cleese had officially declared himself finished with TV sketch comedy and was leaving the other five pythons to labor the best they could. Although Graham had enjoyed many writing, writing partnerships, it was Cleese that he had the most success with. Graham would just kind of walk around the house rambling silly things. John Cleese would sit there and type them all out and add what he could. That's how they wrote the majority of Monty Python sketches. With John gone, Graham needed someone new. Enter Douglas Adams. Chapman's offer was almost unspoken. He just needed help, and Adams eagerly agreed to give it, and was working on a sketch for Series 4 before the ice in his first G&T had melted. Quite fittingly, this was a medical skit created by Michael Palin and Terry Jones, but Dr. Chapman, Graham Chapman, was technically a doctor, had decided to give it another go with Adams' help. Would you like to read a skit with me, Stephanie? Yes, I will read a skit with you. You be Williams, I'll be the doctor. Okay. Well, do take a seat. What seems to be the trouble? I've just been stabbed by your nurse. Oh, dear. I'd probably have a look at you then. Could you fill this form out first? Couldn't I fill it out later, doctor? No, no, you bled to death by then. Can you hold a pen? I'll try. Yes, jolly good. Hell of a nuisance, all this damn paperwork. Really, it is. Really, it is a hell of a nuisance. Something ought to be done about it. Well, then, let's see how you've done, then. Oh, dear, oh, dear. That's not very good, is it? Look, surely you knew number four. It's from the Merchant of Venice. Even I knew that. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Don't look at the next one. Adams found himself a number of tempting jobs, including a nightmarish time as an inept filing clerk, but he refused to follow the example of Martin and Will and sign up for anything more taxing. Quote, Two of them felt it was a good idea to get a day job to support themselves while writing. But I thought if you did that, you'd end up doing the day job and not doing the writing. So I simply got the odd office job now and then for a few weeks to pay the rent. They ended up, just as I thought, doing their day jobs. So I went ahead on my own. Adams was afraid that an accounting career or something similarly ghastly was in store for him, and he had gone out and bought a tie as kind of a symbolic acceptance of his fate. 
The one thing that gave him strength to leave it on the rack was Chapman's support, and particularly the important step of signing contracts with his first agent, Jill Foster, who had most of the pythons on her books. Nonetheless, Adam Smith Adams prevailed for some time with gently dwindling energy, signing off from Cambridge Theater with Cerberus, the Amazing Three-Headed Review, which debuted at Arts Theater in early November 1974, though their sketches would crop up in footlight shows and smokers for the rest of the decade. Hmm. Working with Chapman was exactly what he thought it would be, Adams admitted, quote, Everybody drank all day, so by the end of the day, everybody was completely pissed. Or Graham was pretty pissed. I was too young and inexperienced. I didn't know how barmy this all was, or to know what to do about it being barmy. Propping up bars with Chapman made for stunning future anecdotes, but about the great man banging his penis on the bar for, serv- for service or dangling into the stranger's drinks just for the reaction. But Adams was to find out that collaborating with a man who drank an average of two bottles of gin a day was no apprenticeship. Quote, he was an extraordinary man, obviously an enormous talent in writing, even if he became a bit undisciplined and self-indulgent. He commanded an enormous amount of real affection and loyalty from a very wide and eclectic bunch of people who just thought he was wonderful, strange, and exasperating. Again, in our work, he was the subversive one, but instead of subverting a group of his peers, he was giving me a hard time as a sort of wet-behind-the-ears guy who didn't know anything. I think if I had more experience at that time and was better able to stand up to him, or know for sure what to stand up to him about, in other words, if I had more grip on my own craft, then I think we could have fared better. But at the end, it was not a marriage of equals. There was more excitement to come for Douglas when he was invited to join the group for location shooting over at Exeter, allowing him the further honor of actually appearing in the show. Between donning a surgical mask to to play up to the camera as Dr. Emil Koenig during a lengthy opening monologue for the Light Entertainment War, which was entirely coincidentally episode 42. Hmm. And walking across the street and drag to place a missile in a scrap cart, Adam's on-screen time amounted to little less than 15 seconds. But it was an honor. I bet it was. And, as if Douglas hadn't had enough wish- wishes fulfilled, the most pressing and silliest project to hand came from real-life Beetle. Ringo Starr had been feted as the clown of the group very early on, and cemented this by making a lazy cameo as himself in the last episode of Monty Python. Ringo also went to stumble his way through acting in a film project called Son of Dracula, originally Count Downey, Ringo was a diehard whore and sci-fi fan. Star played Merlin, the Dracula's family advisor, for no apparent reason besides the possibility that the costumers only had a wizard costume left. <laughs> yeah, Ringo's not any... I don't think he's anyone's favorite Beatle. No. Ringo and a few people from the production were called at Graham's house to set up a Steenbeck editing suite showing the film, inviting their host and Adams to improvise a funnier soundtrack. The film has never resurfaced. That's probably a good thing. Yeah, maybe. 
A return to reality of sorts called for Adams as he accepted an unexpected but gratefully debt-easing job as a bodyguard to an Arab sheik and a family who were so overwhelmingly wealthy that they could afford to order everything on the menu at the the Dorchester Hotel every evening to see what they fancied before sending out for McDonald's. All the naturally pacific but physically proposing Adams had to do was sit outside the family suite for 12 hours at a time and look imposing. At any sign of danger, of course, he, would have ha- he wouldn't have had the slightest idea of what to do except perhaps hone a suitably cutting remark. It was sheer drudgery. Although the night he perched with a book attempting to keep sane as every computerized lift in the building randomly tinged his attention... One memorable dawn, an exhausted escort sauntered down the corridor towards him and complained that at least he could read on the job. Aww. (laughs) Another temp job, more in line with Adam's ambitions at this time, was a few days as a prop buyer for one of John Cleese's video arts training films. In this case, an accountancy. This brief job would be barely worth mentioning were it not for the fact that a beleaguered abacus fingerer played by Cleese was faced with the struggle to come up with the answer to an irritating sum. And it had to be an amusing number. A certain amount of debating broke out over a tea break about what actually was the funniest two-digit number. Cleese maintained that he and Chapman had once decided there was no number funnier than 42. And so, that had to be the one. 42 is the the best number in the world. I told you you'd find out the story behind 42, and it's pretty much just they thought it was the funniest one, so that's the one they <laughs> used. And then you keep seeing it pop up, and you're like, once you see 42, you see it pop up everywhere. It's like that movie, uh, the number 23. Find 23s everywhere. After their time at Cambridge, Douglas and John Lloyd became incredibly close, the type of friendship that you usually only have once or twice in your life. And this friendship, with this friendship, came competition over everything. Women, material, jobs, opportunities, everything. And in Douglas's mind, John almost always won out. But in mid-1976, Douglas was temporarily buoyed to get a chance to top John when he was picked from the shortlist of potential ex-footlighters to return and direct that year's May Week Review, a consciously punky effort entitled A Kick in the Stalls. Two key pieces of the hitchhiker puzzle would fall in Adam's lap in this time. The more controversial of the two concerned the original 17th century manuscript, which was on clear display in Porter's Lounge, a dry Puritan work, The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven, by a zealous Cambridge graduate four centuries previously, called Arthur Dent. Douglas never recalled picking the precious book up at any stage, though Porter did admit to an uncomfortable reaction from him when the subject was brought up many years later. It seemed fairest to all to put this down as a coincidence, but as yet another example of Adam's ability to file away influences imperceptibly. Of far more material benefit to Douglas was a book that he had picked up, I Was a Kamikaze by Ruji Nagasutka, which 
by its nature, was written by something of a failure. If you were a kamikaze, you weren't a successful kamikaze. Yes, exactly. Monty Python had written their own kamikaze sketch involving lots of enthusiastically suicidal Scotsmen. But in Douglas's format is an inept Japanese pilot explaining himself to his superior. Stephanie, would you like to read one more skit with me? Yes. Okay. You will be the commander. I will be the pilot. Hold on just a second. Let's set the scene. Wild flurry of flamenco music, which continues for some time. A voice. Japan, 1945. Set consists of a bench and a briefing room on which sits one kamikaze pilot with his gear and headband on. On the bench are laid out the headbands of many other presumably deceased kamikaze pilot. A commander stands to address the meeting and see. Now, you all know the purpose of this mission. Your sacred task is to destroy the ships of the American fleet in the Pacific. This will involve the deaths of each and every one of you, including you. Me, sir? Yes, you. What are you? A kamikaze pilot, sir. And what is your function as a kamikaze pilot? To lay down my life for the emperor, sir. How many missions have you flown on? Nineteen, sir. Yes, I have the reports on your previous missions here. Let's see. Couldn't find target, couldn't find target, got lost, couldn't find target, forgot to take headband, couldn't find target, couldn't find target, headband slipped over eyes, couldn't find target, came back with headache. Headband too tight, sir. (laughs) (laughs) This proved to be the highlight of a multi-threaded review comprised of self-referential interlocking sketches centered on the Russian annexation of the state of Bogofia, which was worked on assiduously by Adams and his team, with a cast including ambitious freshmen Charles Shaughnessy, Nani Williams, and Jimmy Mulville. The extra material from Jimmy's writing partner, Roy McGrath, Will, Martin, John Cantor. The director's ambitious aims did not, however, translate into a successful night at the theater that June. His role as director had been promoted to some extent, as he had even enjoyed his first interview, albeit as Doug Adams, with the Cambridge Evening News, happily stressing the Monty Python connection despite his protest. He admitted to being extremely lucky, but the show's press release humbly described him as, quote, part-time under-assistant spelling mistake corrector to the Monty Python team. Ouch. His biography in the program went further having fun with a few of his already infamous foibles. Douglas is larger than the average family and wears two pairs of trousers on each leg. This year's director, he was unable to do the show last year because he became suddenly tall at the last minute and had to go into the hospital to have his clothes burnt off. He is very sensitive about his enormous nose. He has an unending supply of witty stories which keep everyone amused until long after they've fallen asleep. This does not matter, however, as he comes around first thing in the morning to tell you what you've missed. Recently, he worked with members of Monty Python team, but on the completion of the M62, he returned to a less demanding job. Always a generous person, he rarely carries money in case he gives it away. Favorite sport? Flicking elephants onto their backs and watching them struggle. Possible last words? Well, basically, I think that the basic basis of this is basically rubbish, actually. Dicks. (laughs) 
But reportedly, the nigh on three hours which audiences were presented with both in Cambridge and on tour through Oxford, Southampton, and the Robin Hood Theater in Nottinghamshire drew the wrong kinds of howls from the stalls. The local paper had to follow up their puff piece with a verdict that kick in the stalls was, quote, crushingly unfunny, woefully overlong, and almost totally lack of originality. The other reviewers tend to concur. It would be gradually honed, and the kamikaze briefing sketch was always singled out for praise. But while Douglas was in charge, there were problems. Simple practicalities of stagings had apparently been ignored with Douglas's characteristically single-mindedness, with the result that one sketch about an ascetic hermit, St. Simon Stylites, who lived for years at the top of a pole trying to commune with God, took longer to set up than it did to perform. With stagehands desperately nudging the heavy platform into place in the interminable blackout, Douglas' time as a director had ended. There were only two further sources of comfort for him that summer, and we'll get to those on episode two of Douglas Adams. Yay! Oh, this episode was awesome. <laughs> it was. I loved it. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I think that they had the wrong audience for what they were doing. Uh, well, again, if no matter how good something is, if you got to sit there in the dark for God knows how long, waiting for the sets. We went and saw my son's uh, musical a couple years ago, and it, as, as a musical, it was great, but it took forever for them to set up, and it turned an hour and a half long play into like a three and a half long ordeal. It was horrible to sit through all that shit. Well, it was also horrible because their chorus couldn't sing. No, the chorus sang fine. Leave them alone. No, their their chorus teacher sucked ass. The chorus teacher wasn't great, but the kids and the sound from the school. Yes, yeah, that was horrible. But that was all technical stuff. The kids did fine. It's just the fact that it took forever to set everything up that really got annoying. But the kids did great. That's it for episode one. Do you want to give out our social? (laughs) Yes, on Instagram and Twitter, I am at ecjbet. We are at Audio Parfait, and we are at Open an Effing Book, F-I-N-G. I'm Young ETAM6 on Twitter, Young ETAM on Instagram. Uh, go to our Goodreads account. I will have, we will put these books up there now that we've given away who it is. Um, well, I'll put them up there tomorrow once the episode is released. Yeah. No point in putting them up there today. Uh, oh, I... Well, yeah, duh. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I keep Jesus forgetting. <laughs> I'm tired. Go to our Goodreads account, goodreads.com slash audio parfait, and see all the things that Stephanie has been reading and the uh, research I've been doing. Uh, email us at info at audioparfait.com. Give us any, uh, tell us what you think, uh, what's your favorite Douglas Adams book, any authors you would like for us to cover, uh, books that you'd like for us to talk about on our weekday Cliff Notes show. Uh, webpage is audioparfait.com where you can get episodes of this, all the back episodes, and episodes of our other podcast. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt where we cover wrestling news and rumors and do a Mount Rushmore every week. Um, don't forget to stop by on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, whenever it goes through, for our weekday Cliff Notes episodes where we do cover new books that are out and book news, uh, rumors, all that stuff. 
Patreon, patreon.com slash audioparfait if you think that we do enough work to deserve to get paid a dollar or two for it. We have uh, four tiers up there right now, so you can join any one of those. Go to your local library, go to your local bookstore, buy a, a book from a local author at a local bookstore. It's the best thing you can do for, for all of them right now because they they really get all their money in from walk-in traffic. They're not like Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million where you can buy the stuff online. They really need you to come in or call in. Some indie authors do release theirs digitally only, but you can do that on Kindle or Wattpad or other sources like that. Yeah, so so help out your local library, your local bookstore, your local author. And I think that is it. That is it. All right. Well, as we say every week, take care of yourself, take care of one another, and between now and the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right, we'll see you. Bye, guys.